creation stories on every continent, different alien species have been the subject matter. Outer space is another term for the heavens. Angels are beings from the heavens. Aliens are beings from out of space. It is all the same thing. A nice way of manipulating semantics to distract you from the fact that our gods are aliens. Nothing new under the sun as these creatures and their craft appear even on the most ancient walls. They make appearances in biblical texts and so do their spacecraft, which is described as a certain hierarchy of angels called the thrones that were wheel-shaped with multiple eyes and responsible for carrying God. The modern translation, these throne angels that carry God are actually spaceships carrying extraterrestrials. And since the earliest creation stories say that extraterrestrials were actually responsible for creating mankind, our ancestors rightly called them God and gods. And I can bet that big bright light that will appear at the time of judgment when God will take up his chosen people in the blink of an eye and leave behind the rest, this prophetic rapture is actually what will be soon known as the day when either one humongous mothership or armadas of spaceships come and abduct thousands and millions of people off the face of the planet earth. Many UFO abductees speak of having the same thing happening to them. A bright light appears and the next thing they know, they have been abducted within the blank of an eye. The rapture is indeed a massive alien abduction. The last cabinet level United States Secretary of the Navy, who was also the first U.S. Secretary of Defense, James Vincent Forrestal, was heavily scrutinized when he argued against the continuation of suppressing information concerning extraterrestrials to America's public by means of gradually disclosing information to the public to prevent shock and panic. Forrestal's colleagues argued the opposite and said that common knowledge of technologically and militarily superior non-humans from another world would utterly unhinge society, diminish faith and religion, undermine trust in the armed forces, and lead to a collapse in the international economy. For this, Forrestal resigned on March 28, 1949, and being a non-free agent without restrictions, he and his good friend, Rear Admiral Byrd, planned on exposing the truth about extraterrestrials and the then-current spiking UFO sightings in America and around the world. And they began making preparations through the proper channels to do so, but on May 22, 1949, not even two months after Forrestal's resignation, Forrestal suddenly fell to his death on the 16th floor of the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, where reports said he had been supposedly recovering from severe depression and ultimately resorted to suicide. A cover-up for James Vincent Forrestal being assassinated by the government due to being a risk of exposing information that they did not want out. In the late 1980s, however, photocopies of the original U.S. government briefing papers describing the top-secret research and development intelligence project Forrestal headed, called Operation Majestic 12, was published, and paragraph 2 said the following. The untimely death of Secretary Forrestal was deemed necessary and regrettable. <laughs> World War I, January 10, 1916. America had not yet entered World War I, yet many Americans felt a need to prepare. 
Carney's Point was an important munitions factory that had quickly expanded to meet the needs of the war effort and employed over 25,000 workers. On January 10, 1916, a glazing house for sealing explosives in travel-protected glass containers was demolished by a powerful explosion. January 11, 1916, the following morning, DuPont's Hagley Yard munitions plant in Wilmington, Delaware experienced two blasts that obliterated several power mills and within 24 hours, the same plant was hit by a third detonation destroying yet another powder mill. January 14, 1916, three days later, an acid house at DuPont's Gibbstown, New Jersey factory blows up. Two weeks later, disaster struck Carney's Point when five buildings were burnt to the ground. February 4th, 1916, fire erupted in a photographic studio at the same plant. And 48 hours later, DuPont's Tacoma, Washington munitions works exploded. No less than 39 mysterious UFO-induced explosions suddenly and simultaneously raged across Philadelphia for 16 hours, beginning the night on February 14th, during late winter, a season known for its low fire hazard. February 15th, a distillation house at the Gibbstown factory was destroyed by fire. February 17th and 24th, Carney's Point was yet again ravaged by fires. February 22, 1916, DuPont's Deepwater Point Station for shipping explosives blew up. So many explosions blew up DuPont factories that were making gunpowder for the Allied forces within a matter of six weeks. The government did not believe it to be the doings of any foreign powers, and there were witnesses stating that they saw strange-looking aircraft before the incidents of these UFOs interfering with America's war production efforts. This is the hint that the elites and heads of America were aware that our country's munitions plants were being systematically targeted for demolition by some other species from aliens. In 1917, philosopher, psychologist, and education reformer John Dewey addressed the visiting Japanese delegation at Washington, D.C.'s Carnegie Endowment for International Peace by saying the best way to cause all the people of the world to come together in one world government and end war forever would be if we were attacked by some other species from another planet. After sunrise, March 13, 1917, West Belgium, 25-year-old Baron Manfred von Richthofen better known as Red Baron, was accompanied in the air only by his younger wingman, Peter Weistrick. Dawn patrol flew routinely for almost an hour through the clear skies of early morning until a large metal disc ringed at its perimeter by orange lights appearing without warning directly in front of them. Weistrick recalled being terrified because he and his crew had never seen anything like it before. The metallic disc was maybe 136 feet in diameter compared to the 28-foot, 10 and 1 quarter inch wingspan of their very own pursuit planes. So Baron automatically opened fire, causing the metallic disc to go down like a rock and crash into the woods below. What he saw next would blow his mind. Two little bald-headed guys climbing out of the metallic disc and running away. When the Baron and Weishrick reported the incident to headquarters, they told them never to mention it again. Neither the wreckage of the disc the Red Baron shot down nor its two surviving operators are mentioned in any German Army field reports. Although for millennia, thousands of UFO eyewitnesses and encounters has happened, this was the actual first documented incident where one was brought down. 
I am sure after being shot down for the first time, it threw the extraterrestrials off as they had never been attacked or been able to be attacked by mankind, at least not in a while since ancient times. But this incident occurred when the United States had just about entered World War I, when the United States was officially neutral, but expected to join the then European War. So initially, the crew thought it was an aircraft sent by the United States. But later after the war, during the upsurge of UFO sightings in the later 40s, the crew then knew that the aircraft they had seen 40 years prior during World War I had not been sent by the United States. It was an intergalactic spacecraft. <coughs> April 14, 1917, 2.30 p.m., Maine Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. Just one month and one day after Red Baron shot down a UFO near the border of France and Germany, and just one week after U.S. Congress declared war against Imperial Germany, an unidentified flying object was seen flying in low direction and low altitude over the Piscata River. During a time when all airplane engines were so loud that they could be heard from miles around, three servicemen noticed this particular aircraft was utterly silent. When a suspicious aircraft dove towards the bridge the soldiers were stationed on, they opened fire with their M1903 Springfield rifles, which caused the craft to accelerate at a terrific speed and then vanish almost instantly into the night. After the Massachusetts National Guard conducted a thorough investigation of this incident, they concluded that neither civilian nor military aircraft, American or foreign, had been involved. This was the first UFO military engagement of its kind on United States soil. <sighs> Sometime prior to 1939, Hitler goes to hollow earth. <sighs> September 1st, 1939, the beginning of World War II. <sighs> August 6th and August 9th, 1945, Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombed by U.S. atomic bombs. <sighs> September 2nd, 1945, World War II officially ends. And America discreetly brings Nazi intelligence into the country, of which gets exposed later with the exposure of Project MKUltra. <clears throat> Almost immediately after World War II was over, American agents began interrogating then corroborating information with former Nazi intelligence agents. America then suddenly becomes interested in Antarctica. After the ending of the treacherous World War II, there was an assemblance of peace for the first time in six years, and nations everywhere were drastically scaling down their armed forces. But less than one year after World War II's official ending, a huge armada departed U.S. waters on August 26, 1946, heading for Antarctica, a location for one of the largest entrances to hollow earth. Operation High Jump was the largest Antarctic expedition to date, spearheaded by U.S. Naval Rear Admiral Richard E. Byrd, consisting of 13 ships, 4,700 men, and numerous aerial devices. Interesting considering Antarctica had always been there, but never before had anybody shown such interest in it, especially not to this extent. And not to mention, this expedition was also well-equipped in full-on war gear for whatever in Antarctica, if need be. Previously, Antarctica was just seen as a massive, vast ice land that was uninhabited. So why the war-prepped expedition? 
The operation's flagship was the USS Philippine Sea, and at 27,100 tons, she was amongst the largest aircraft carriers ever built, powered by eight boilers, four Westerhouse geared steam turbines for a combined 150,000 horsepower and a range of 20,000 nautical miles. On board were 100 fighters, dive bombers, torpedo bombers, arrays of 5-inch artillery, and 40-milliliter OFAR anti-aircraft guns, 4-inch, 2.5-inch, and 1.5-inch steel armor-protected the 888-foot-long hull hangar deck and conning tower. Accompanying the USS Philippine were other massive ships, a submarine which had 10 officers and 71 enlisted men on board, as well as multiple warships, tankers, and helicopters, all collectively known as Task Force 68. The guised mission of this expedition was quote-unquote research, but something did not quite add up. Why was there more war equipment than anything? In fact, there was very few research scientists and investigative equipment that was brought along. No personal training or equipment testing took place. No effort was made to explore possibilities for other base sites involving aircraft or ships. No practice maneuvers or exercises of the kind were performed. And just 40 days after reaching Antarctica, units were already withdrawing from Antarctica and headed to dock in South America for repairs which terminated their mission, which had been scheduled from half a year to eight months. Yet somehow, in less than six weeks, the aircraft had logged 220 hours with over 22,700 miles. This is as much hours and flying time it would take to fly over an area half the size of the United States. Yet this all happened in Antarctica. Half of bird, seaplane, and helicopter forces had also been lost. And during the middle of whatever had happened, Bird himself had gone missing for more than three hours while he was in an aircraft himself. Although every member of the expedition was under order to never discuss their mission with anybody outside of their task force, Admiral Byrd mentioned a few things to a Chilean publication saying that his task force had ran into trouble and suffered many fatalities. On March 5, 1947, Chilean newspaper El Mercurio published a few more of Rear Admiral Byrd's words stating, Admiral Richard E. Byrd warned us today that it was imperative for the United States to initiate immediate defense measures against hostile forces threatening from the Arctic and Antarctic. The Admiral explained that he was not trying to unduly alarm anybody, but the cruel reality is that in case of a new war, the United States could be attacked by flying objects which can move from pole to pole at incredible speeds. Byrd stated that Task Force 68 was indeed thrown together with frantic haste as though America was on the brink of war. It seemed that the higher ups in the government knew exactly what they were sending their troops in to do, but the troops were fed another story and mission objective. They all found out the real truth of their mission a bit too late, however. <coughs> Rear Admiral Byrd reported stumbling across a lavishly green plot of land in Antarctica that had a very large opening in it that was home to an ancient advanced civilization of hollow earth beings. This hollow earth was overseen by an entity named the Master. The master of this hollow earth land told Bird that he and their people never interfered with the ongoings of mankind until mankind tampered with a power they had no right to, which was the technology used and the use of the atomic bombs used to drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan on August 6th and August 9th, 
1945. The master of Hollow Earth told Bird that he had sent warning to the leaders of mankind, but to no avail, and his warnings thus far have been ignored. In fact, in January of 1945, Washington State's Hanford Engineering Works plant in Richland began processing plutonium for the manufacturing of nuclear weapons. The facility had been built near the Columbia River, which cooled the site's reactor piles. These were necessary for the building of the two atomic bombs that were eventually dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Because of this, this area was the most top secret and best guarded location in North America. And its vicinity was strictly off limits to all aircraft. So it was a bit alarming when a blip appeared on radar operators' instrument screens late January of 1945, just seven months before the actual bombing of the atomic bombs in Japan. These operators alerted Pasco Naval Air Station 60 miles away, and two night fighters were sent to intercept the intruder. One of the airmen, Richard Brown, was able to make out the intruding aircraft and noted it was a blinding red ball of fire before it flew off at an unapproachably fast speed in the direction of Seattle and then vanished off the airbase's radar. Over the next four and a half months, similar incidents occurred over the plant. In mid-July of 1945, just two months before the atomic bomb was dropped in Japan, America built its second nuclear facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Several unknown disks flew over it, appearing to have bright lights, with a seemingly aluminum finish traveling at tremendous speeds. Where Admiral Byrd later reported his findings and his conversation with the master to his superiors back in Washington, D.C., where he was interrogated for hours and quickly reminded of his duties as a military personnel and his duty not to say another word about his findings. His findings were sealed as classified, which basically orders the silencing of all the expedition's veterans. Shortly thereafter, the U.S. Navy published a brief and rather evasive summary of Operation High Jump's quote-unquote achievements. The losses were glossed over and minimized. The anonymous report nonetheless admitted that fully half of Bird's seaplane and helicopter forces had been lost and that he himself was nearly brought down in the aircraft he was flying, avoiding a crash only because he jettisoned everything on board in order to stay aloft, save the bearers essential and the reconnaissance films he had just taken. The summary further admits that Task Force 68 did indeed suffer some human casualties, but all these casualties were nicely covered up by the government as being a result of accidental causes. <laughs> The Soviets, however, were not so privy. It is not appalling that Joseph Stalin knew far more about the real tea on Operation High Jump than American people did. America's close alliance with Stalin during World War II allowed Soviet spies to infiltrate at all levels of the United States government, including its armed forces. Because of the high position spies often attained, they had access to classified accounts of undertakings such as Operation High Jump. Details of the expedition, hidden from the United States public and the rest of the outside world, were transmitted by a Soviet operative to the Kremlin, where they languished until their rediscovery before the turn of the 21st century. Shortly thereafter, a Moscow television documentary finally disclosed the Stalin era report about Task Force 68's covert experiences in Antarctica. Quoted in the report is radio man John P. Swatch, who served aboard the USS Brownson. Swatch said, we observed the following. On the horizon, a bright colorless light, we thought it was another ship. We were below the Antarctic Circle in uncharted waters off of Carcat Island in the Waddell Sea. Our radar was activated to no avail. I and my shipmates in the pilot house port side observed for several minutes the bright lights that ascended about 45 degrees into the sky very quickly. We could not ID the lights because our radar was limited to 250 miles in a straight line. Our quartermaster, John Driscoll, 
recorded this in our log. Nearly three hours later, the lights, five of them, reappeared in the same area of the Waddell Sea and began to rapidly close on the destroyer. Commander HMS Gimber ordered the ship's 40 millimeter bull force anti-aircraft guns and 20 millimeter Orlicon cannons to commence firing on the objects, which flew over the Brownson at high speed and low altitude, about 200 feet, without achieving any hits. According to the Soviet espionage report, this encounter opened a series of brief but fierce skirmishes that lasted over the next several weeks, resulting in dozens of officers and men killed or wounded. The most casualties were suffered by Admiral Byrd's Central Group, which as even the sanitized post-expedited U.S. Navy version of the report admitted, had to be evacuated by the Burton Island icebreaker from the Bay of Wales on February 22, 1947. A variety of strangely configured craft then executed noiseless menacing passes at the naval units, which fired their ordnance at the triangular and boomerang-like vehicles. No casualties were sustained on either side during these first in near misses, and the unidentifiable vessels did not return fire before quickly vanishing into the morning sky. A few hours later, in the early afternoon, an enormous cigar-shaped object came from out of the sea and floated silently, like some gargantuan dirigible low above the surface of the sea. When the unmarked intruder unintentionally drifted within range of the USS Senate, Commander Joseph B. Eisenhower ordered the submarine's deck guns to commence firing. A direct hit with a five-inch shell amidships caused the huge craft to veer wildly out of control, then crashed nose down into the water. It was Task Force 68's only kill. After four days of encounters and a kind of parting shot, the spherical lights executed a dramatic attack witnessed by Lieutenant John Sayerson, a flying boat pilot. Sayerson reported, the thing shot vertically out of the water at tremendous velocity as though pursued by the devil and flew between the mass of ship at such a high speed that the radio antenna oscillated back and forth in its turbulence. <sighs> Not so coincidentally, in 1955, a cigar-shaped UFO was spotted over Palomar Gardens, California by a man named George Adamski. This was not Adamski's first rodeo with sighting and photographing UFOs. As a matter of fact, in 1952, Adamski reported that he had met and conversed with a visitor from Venus in a California desert who communicated with him using a combination of hand gestures and mental telepathy. Adamski would later have multiple conversations with this Venusian figure who sometimes came with other entities from Mars and Saturn. Adamski wrote about being taken on board a scout ship that flew him to an enormous mothership that was hovering over Earth and then being given a ride around the moon while being disclosed to information about Venus. Adamski was told that every planet in our solar system was populated with human-like inhabitants, humanoids, and so was the dark side of Earth's moon. The Venusian figure who was so hospitable to Adamski was a man called the Master. The Master was also the name of the same entity that was the Master of Hollow Earth that Admiral Byrd spoke to. And it is interesting that he is from Venus, just like Lucifer is said to be the morning star, Venus, just like at the bottom of Hollow Earth, which is situated in the South Pole, Antarctica, and Dante's Inferno, the entity at the bottom of Hollow Earth is Lucifer. This is the bottomless pit spoken about in religion. This is the inner earth realm spoken about in all religions of the old matter of fact, where all old religions can agree that there are entities inside the planet, whether they be good, bad, neutral, or other. 
Over on this channel, I am unbiased about figures considered evil in religion as everything is not what mankind has been fed for centuries when you dig a lot deeper. In a nutshell, most of the public knows about the Roswell crash that occurred in July of 1947. Most of us have seen the video leak of the alleged extraterrestrial that was inside being dissected. We know about how the government covered up this incident by saying that it was a weather balloon. But eyewitnesses begged to differ and were silenced and at the end of their lives revealed truths and artifacts and stories that made much more sense than a narrative that was spun during the initial cover-up. Earlier, I mentioned a man named James Vincent Forrestal, a man who two weeks after the Roswell UFO crash of 1947 was elevated from his position as Secretary of the Navy to Secretary of Defense only two months and two weeks after the Roswell UFO crash. And he was later rewarded the Medal of Honor by Harry S. Truman himself. Not to mention, Forrestal was the first Secretary of Defense. Why? Forrestal was directly responsible for taking down the UFO that crashed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You see, after Admiral Byrd had informed Forrestal of what really occurred in Antarctica during Operation High Jump, Forrestal began as Secretary of Naval Defense, plunging into the data of military reports of these extraterrestrial ships and formed a plan. Roswell Army Air Force was the repository of U.S. arsenal of nuclear weapons and bombers that could be delivered anywhere in the world. Early powerful radar technology was being installed in the state to protect military and research installations, and by 1947, the El Vado Lake radar station, just 300 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico, was already set up and running full on. Forrestal's plan was to lure the extraterrestrials into the short range of radar arrays he and the Atomic Energy Commission had posted around Los Alamos, along with related research and Air Force sites throughout New Mexico as early as 1946. Forrestal knew this is what piqued the extraterrestrials' interest and the type of place that they had been randomly showing up at for two years by then. This was the trap. The plan was to lure them into this area, and when the craft descended low and slowly enough for radar operators to track their position, then high-intensity radar energy would be concentrated at the UFO to bake their interiors at 400 degree Fahrenheit plus temperatures to essentially turn them into a flying microwave. For years, they had been testing this technology on flying birds, and sure enough, just four months after Operation High Jump had been aborted, a pair of silvery discs appeared over the trap spot. Its position was forwarded to radar operators who, as planned, zapped them with intense microwave transmissions from multiple machines, one ricocheted off a 6,000-foot ridge north of Capitan Peak, then crashed southeast of Corona, 30 miles north of Roswell, New Mexico, which is where ranch foreman William Brazil found clusters of debris on Foster Ranch, 30 miles outside of Roswell in an area known as the Plains of St. Augustine. The occupants of the crowds were instantly cooked. The Roswell mortician who examined those alien corpses observed that the skin was black and the poor condition of their bodies likely due to physical impact and burning. The exact same trap and microwave to death plan seemed successful yet again just eight months later, 375 miles northwest of Roswell in Aztec, New Mexico. As noted earlier, Forrester was the mastermind behind the successful lure and kill known as the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, which was a direct retaliation against the extraterrestrials who had destroyed half of Rear Admiral Byrd's Task Force 68 in Antarctica. For this, Forrester was promoted to being the first Secretary of Defense, where he later wanted to reveal to the public slowly but surely the reality of mankind's existence on this planet amongst 
extraterrestrials. As stated earlier, Forrester was brutally shunned and fought back on his ideology and decided to resign on March 28, 1949, and soon began talks with his old good friend, Rear Admiral Byrd, to expose the truth, and the pair began making preparations through the proper channels to do so. But on May 22, 1949, not even a full two months after Forrestal's official resignation from Secretary of Defense, Forrestal committed quote-unquote suicide, but later discovered documents prove it was actually an assassination that the government deemed unfortunate yet necessary. <laughs> However, it is interesting that Byrd was never told that he was lying or seen as insane. The military rather only tried to silence him instead. The higher-ups definitely knew they were going to Antarctica on what would be possibly the first war of the world's stint, as they even named the operation High Jump, insinuating that they would be battling something in the skies high up above. Later, more and more countries would venture to Antarctica and the Antarctic Treaty was made. It does seem that the aliens in the Antarctic, quite frankly, whooped America's ass. So much for America never losing. America actually went to the end of the earth to wake up the real sleeping giant. And you know what they say. If you go looking for something, you are going to find it. For more discussions of conspiracy theories or odd and unusual things that happen on this planet or in outer space or anywhere, please like, comment, and subscribe. I will not let you down.